0: Well, we are back in the book of Acts after a week break. And we are over in Acts chapter 21 and verse 15. Paul is making his way over to Jerusalem. Had a real heart-tugging time over there with the folks at Ephesus. Gets away from them. And then he heads on down here into Jerusalem. We get a little bit of the rundown of where he's going. In verse 15, after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem... Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Early disciple means he was a disciple believer from the beginning or near the beginning. And he was from Caesarea, or at least had moved there, and so they were going to lodge there with him. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, of course, he's always had places before where they've received him gladly, and it didn't last that long. <laughs> On the following day, Paul went, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, the last time that Paul was in Jerusalem, you remember, remember when that was? And James gives him the list. And then he takes that list and they go to the churches they were supposed to go to and that was about it. So he has not reported to the folks here what's been going on, not that he feels the need to. He's very clear he's under the Church of Antioch, not the Church of Jerusalem, but since he's at the Church of Jerusalem and are there, he just tells them what it is that God God has going on. It's not a report that he has to be accountable to them, because he does not feel he's accountable to them. He is just giving them a report of what God is doing in other places. And so he reports it to James. And the elders, what Paul doesn't know is that the church of Jerusalem has digressed quite a bit since his last visit. And even James is being severely pulled into a lot of this stuff. And uh, even to the point of leading the church in a lot of this legalism, which is a shame. In verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now, just because people glorify the Lord does not mean good things. Just understand this. You may share some things with some people that are believers, and they may glorify the Lord. But it does not always mean a good thing. And here's one of the clues. There's many clues, other clues, but here's one of the clues. And we're going to see it come out of the mouth. I assume it's James, but it may be one of the other elders because it doesn't really identify it as being James. It says, uh, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, there's One person is being the spokesperson here, and they're all saying this to him. You can't all be saying the same thing, and uh, it's just kind of a weird way to have a conversation. But one person is certainly saying it, but they're saying, speaking it for all of them that are there. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. What has that to do with anything that Paul just said? has absolutely nothing to do with it. People may be very glad to hear what God has done with you, but, but they used it to transition into something that is not godly. <laughs> Beware. This, what, they're, what they're going to transition into here is not something that is godly. Look at what he says. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. He's talking about Jews who were under the law who have believed that Jesus is the Christ. James is still preaching Jesus. He's just preaching Jesus and the law. And they are all zealous for the law. Does that make sense? If, if we were zealous for Jesus, but we're also zealous for the law, is that possible? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law. So if you're going to be zealous for Jesus, then you need to get past the law. Not, not that we ignore the law. There's still some things, they you know, how many of y'all know it's still good not to murder? <laughs> not to steal. There's still some good parts of the law. But you shouldn't be zealous for the law. You should be zealous for the gospel. You should be zealous for the things of Jesus, that Jesus stood for. Not this. When they brought the letter of the law to Jesus, what did he constantly do? He, he stepped around it. When the woman was, you know, we, she should be killed because of the law. All right. Well, the first one of you that's uh, afraid free that, Come on over here. Cast the first, cast the first stone. So uh, he, Jesus was not zealous for the law. He was zealous for people. He was zealous for people to get saved. He was zealous for the things of God. He was zealous for the will of God. Those are the things we should do. But here, I'm assuming it's James. It may not be James. But someone of this group here is speaking. James is the leader of them. How many myriads of Jews? are In other words, there's a whole mess of Jews. That have been born again. And they're zealous for the law. It does not matter how many people do a thing if the thing is wrong. But, you know, we're still fascinated with numbers. If a whole lot of people are doing it, it ought to be good. You know, four out of five dentists. Right? <laughs> if a whole lot of people are on board, it's got to be a good thing. It has nothing to do with it. A whole lot of people can be on board for something that's wrong. But this is what they bring out. Look at how many Jews have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. It's always somebody else. You know, the the assembly. Well, they're going to meet. Not us. But the assembly, they're going to meet. Um, all the people, all the Jews, they've, they've all heard that you're teaching these things. Therefore, do what we tell you. There's all kinds of warning signs. I'm not quite sure. We'll have to get the way to heaven to get, find this out. Why Paul didn't see the warning signs and just, you know, uh, I'm here for a different purpose and and sidestep this. But James and the gang pulls him into this. And it's it's just a bad thing. It's a bad deal. About the assembly, about the, the people. Now, we do this still today. It's called a straw man argument. Have you ever heard that phrase? A straw man's argument. It's when politicians are notorious for this. They'll just throw out people think, or some people have said, or some people question, or some, and they never say who. Never say who. They just, some people do this. And then they answer the question that they say some people are asking. Well, who are the people who asked that question? Who are the people who are making that assumption? Put some names to it. Give us something. <laughs> but they don't. It's called a straw man argument. You build a straw man and then you argue against them. And that's what James and the gangers doing here. They're building the straw man and then they're arguing against them. I, I don't put any stock in the straw man arguments. If you got, don't tell me critics. Tell me who. And if you want to address the critics then address the, the people that are there. Have a face to face with them. But most time, politicians are afraid of face to face because then they're going to be confronted with something they can't stand facts. They don't like facts. We don't want to deal with facts. Neither does James and the gang that are here. What James and these guys are doing, I mean, Paul is expecting the church, all right, they're caught up in legalism, but he doesn't expect them to be any worse off than they were before. And remember, before, they kept losing people. They kept losing good people. They go over to Antioch and say, "Oh, wow, this this is good over here. <laughs> we like it over here," and they don't go back. And so Jerusalem keeps losing losing folks. And uh, this is this is why it has gotten worse. So they throw out this straw man argument. Well, people say they when they hear that you'll come, these kind of things are are going to go on. Verse twenty one. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews notice how we're exaggerating everything? We've got to sell this. So we've got to over-exaggerate. For they have been informed about you. But not from us. Other people have come in. You know, they have said some things. We've heard it go on. We know that you're not this way. But, you know, people have come in and this is what they think about you. I would just say, well, then why don't you as the head of the church stand up and tell them that's not true? Why not? But James doesn't do it. The more I get into Acts, the less I think of James. I'll tell you that. I'm sure he's in heaven. But I'll tell you, he's just—he not doing a good job leading the church here. You can see why the church leadership went from Jerusalem to Antioch. Even to Ephesus and some other places. What then? The assembly must certainly meet. For they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that these, those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. <laughs> so this is what you do. If you want them to hear your message of grace, get under the law. That's, ba- that's basically what James is telling them. If you want them to hear your message of grace, you need to get under the law. Show everybody that you're under the law. So you're going on ahead with them. You, you did Now, Paul has done vows before. We ran into that in chapter 18. I think it's verse 18, where he had a vow, and it just said he shaved his head or some kind of thing like that and, and went on. Um, doesn't it say exactly what the vow is? It seems to be some kind of a Nazarite vow, and if it is, the shaving of the heads is usually done at the end of it. Because usually you let your hair grow and things like that. But um, again, I'm not sure what it is. And by this point, these vows have gone off in directions uh, different from what they were in the Old Testament and other religious things have taken hold of them and who knows what in the world that they're doing. The details are not really important. What valet was, because I don't think God cares. But Paul gets pulled into this. Don't think that he should be. Don't think that he's going in the right direction, but he's got pulled into it. So he says, uh, so they get him to pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You go in, you pay the expenses. for. Well, if they've already been doing the vow, don't they, didn't they pay the expenses when they started the vow? I, I don't know. That almost seems like a setup to me. We got these folks here. We know Paul's coming. Paul's on his way. Everybody knows Paul's on his way. Message, if, if every place that Paul's gone, he said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, the word's gotten out. And people know he's coming. So they're going to shave their heads. They're going to go through all this. And they went through the purification process. And they were there for a while. Well, uh, I put it in my notes. I don't think it's in, in yours. But what you are zealous for will be passed down to those who have learned from you. If James is telling us that there are many believers in the church of Jerusalem who are zealous for the law, what's that telling us about James? He is zealous for the law too. Because the people that he is teaching will become zealous for the things he is zealous of. They will reflect. So the people that he's talking about here are a reflection of James. And James cannot disconnect himself from these folks and say, well, this is how they are. No, (laughs) this is how they are because you taught them. You've given them an example. And James has brought that church into a lot of legalism. So basically, I think it's like this. Paul, since we taught them wrong, won't you help us continue it? Because look at how many have believed. Look at how many people have gotten born again. So, Paul, we've taught them this way. But won't you help us to continue this teaching with them? Because look at how many people have gotten saved. Look at how many Jews have turned their lives to Jesus. Hmm. Well, we'll continue on here. In uh, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law... I wanted to go over here. Romans, uh, Romans 3, verse 19. Because basically what they're saying Paul to do is, to, you know, Paul get under the law. Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealing, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And he continues to go on there. You can read that that over if you want to. But by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. So why does he go along with the ceremony? He wrote this. In Romans six fourteen, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians five eighteen, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, he did say, in one place, that in order to reach those that are under law, I become as one under the law. And maybe that's the one he's decided to, to go after, but he is, he's written over and over again, We are not under law. He's trying to bring people to the place, We are not under law. So you're going to take the the person who is championing the message, we are not under law, and show him in front of everyone that he is under the law. It's a confusing thing. Verse 25 of Acts 21. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. All this time has passed with James... And he has not grown to see that this list is wrong. I think that's amazing. This is supposed to be one of the spiritual leaders, one of the pillars of the church of that day. And we showed you before what was wrong with this. There's only one thing that is scriptural in that list. And he is still touting it. Even though there's really no revelation from the Word of God in it. It's just a list he came up with. And it's a list that makes Jews comfortable in Gentile places. He's still touting that same list. Isn't that amazing? He just rolls right off the tip of his tongue. Paul probably even forgot about it at this point. He's not preaching that list at all. But James still has it. I bet this must have slapped. I would think this would have slapped Paul in the face. Paul, wake up. This man is under the law. (laughs) But he doesn't uh, do it. Now, God may have a different view of Jerusalem than Paul does. Paul still thinks that they can be saved. They can be brought back. God may have already given up on them. And was trying to tell Paul that it's possible. But it may be that God says, look, they're not going to listen to you. But if you really want to go, you have gone to all the places that I asked you to go. I'll let you go here. I'm just telling you this is what's going to happen. And Paul says, yeah, but I really want to take one more shout up to at my brethren. And God says, look, you've gone everywhere. I, I don't know if this is true. I just kind of think it might be. God might say, look, you have gone all these places that I've asked you to go. You've been beaten. You've been abused. You've been all sorts of stuff. If you want to really go there, go ahead. Paul's a very mature person in the in the things of God, and God can give folks that are that mature some freedom. He still got him over to the Rome. That's where he wanted them to to go was over to Rome. He still got him there. Verse twenty six. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia came all the way from Asia. Well, the Jews are in probably for the feast. Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. (laughs) We know how they stir up the crowd. Crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. (laughs) They've expanded what James even said. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Don't trouble us with the facts. No, we, <laughs> we don't need to know whether you did or not. We are going to presume, we're going to assume that you did, and we're going to declare to everyone that you did, and pass judgment on you for that don't 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 slow us down with the with the facts here we're caught up with accusations and assumptions, and that's what people do there's some people they just get caught up with that verse thirty and all the city was disturbed. well, it is Jerusalem, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. well I guess they didn't want that crowd coming back in. <laughs> <laughs> one thing in the temple. So once they uh, dragged him out of the temple, they shut the doors. And so now he's out there. Now, as they were seeking to kill him. That sounds kind of a uh, blasé there. They were, they were sitting around thinking, all right, how can we kill him? I wonder how we can do. No, they're in a mob. They're in a frenzy. They are seeking to kill him by how? They're pounding on him. <laughs> if they have anything to stab him with, they're, they're, they're making him a bloody mess right now. They are seeking to kill him. They are not seeking to beat him up. They're not seeking to, you know, teach him a lesson. They are seeking to kill him. We got him out here in the streets. We don't care if the law is going to come down on us. We are going to kill him. And we got a whole mob here. They'll have to put us all in prison. They have that mob mentality. Get that mob mentality. People do all kinds of things. So as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He had about a thousand men, according to the Greek wording there. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <laughs> so they were in the process of beating him all this time. He's being beaten. So who knows how long that is? But word has to get to the commander Then he's got to mobilize the people and then get on down there. What's that, 15, 20 minutes maybe? Maybe a half hour? Whatever the time it was, they are beating him the whole time. Here's Paul being beaten all this time. Having done what James had asked him to do. Now, where's James at right now? (laughs) James, you're the one who asked me to do this because it would help the people. Where are you now? Where are the elders who asked me to do this kind of thing? They're gone. They're not there. We don't hear about them at all. To me, it's kind of cowardly. So the commander came near and, and well, verse 32 again. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating him. Well, they saw, the, they saw all these folks. They had a lot of soldiers there. And they saw that and they stopped. Not real sure what they thought. Maybe they thought the soldiers were going to come down and, and just start fighting with them there. And they had swords and they did not. Whatever it was, they, uh, they did stop. And the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Now, this, this, these are some brave soldiers. And this commander, you're going to find out, is a very upstanding guy. The Romans have a lot of upstanding people. And in the next chapter or two, we're going to see some very good ones. Come on out. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of neat to see some of the things we'll see with them. But this commander, they go into a mob that are beating on people to save Paul. They don't even know who Paul is. He's got an assumption as to who Paul is and still he goes in there to save him. I think that's remarkable. He doesn't know if he's worth saving. Doesn't know what he's done. But he goes in there to do it. So the commander came, took him, and commanded him to be bound with two chains. This is basically for his protection. And two chains means he's chained them once one soldier on his left, one soldier on his right. That's the way they normally do things. Two chains, he's bound. And he asked who he was and what he had done. He chained them first. <laughs> and then he, he asked who he was and what he had done. Now, we all know what Paul is. He's a Roman citizen. What the commander has done is not lawful. You cannot put him in, a Roman in chains without knowing what he's guilty of. But he doesn't know he's a Roman. He's assuming he's a Jew. He's actually assumed a little bit more than that. And some among the multitude cried one thing, and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. Well, the reason to take him into the barracks is they're going to they're going to strap him up, and they're going to beat the truth out of him. Because they realize you, you you've done something. We don't know what it is, but you did something. People want to kill you. So we're going to find out what it is. So we're going to strap him up. This is what the Romans do. And they beat you until you confess. They don't like what you say. They keep beating you. So that's what we're going to do. Again, he's a Roman. He can't do that. Now, he let them get away with it before for a purpose, but he's not going to let them get away with it here. And I don't blame him. But in the multitude, no one's consistent because there are no facts. We aren't dealing with facts. We're just dealing with assumptions. Everybody's got a different assumptions. So when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Again, the bravery of the soldiers here. They didn't create this mess. They don't know who's guilty, but they still go in to save the guy who's being beat up. And they actually lift him up, carry him out through this mob. If you're carrying a guy up above your head, carrying him up above the crowd, you're not able to protect yourself as much a little bit more vulnerable. I'm sure they have some soldiers there that are there for protection, other ones that are there to carry them. But still, these are brave soldiers. Again, the prophecy that was given about Paul, that the Jews would deliver him to the Romans. And that is not what happened. The Romans delivered him from the Jews. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out away with him. Now, this phrase here, away with him, is kind of interesting. It comes from the, the word away comes from the Greek word arrow, which means among a number of things, take up. How many remember in the verse of scripture in Mark, when it says, if you take up any deadly serpents, they will not harm you. Do you remember that? It's the exact same word that is used here. Arrow. Arrow. Now here, when it is used, it is speaking of a murderous intent. If you follow this word through the Bible, you will find that there are a number of places in which it has a murderous intent. You will also find some places where it does not. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, guess what word he used? The same word. The same word is used there. But if you go back to the Mark passage... And you can have some fun. It's, a, it's kind of a nice word to just to go on through and do some study on. But if you take up the Mark passage, it says, if you take up any serpents, they will not harm you. If you drink any deadly thing, it will not kill you. So forth. Well, if you look at the context of those two things, why would you drink anything poisonous? Because someone who's an enemy slipped it on you, right? Somebody who wanted to kill you. Gave you something and wanted to kill you in in that way. So if this word arrow can be used of a murderous intent, is it possible that the taking up of snakes is talking about snakes used in a murderous way? Not the way that some churches have used them as a step of faith. Just a thought. Anyway, away with him. Arrow. They, They have a murderous intent. They don't just want him away. They want him dead. They do not just want him out of their sight, they want him dead. So much so that these folks follow him (laughs) wherever they can find him to try and get him. They tried to get him on the boat, and then he didn't end up getting on that boat and left them to go on the boat ride themselves. Verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? He's already made an assumption about Paul. And he does not believe that he would be a Greek speaker. But when Paul speaks and opens his mouth, Paul is an extremely educated man. He didn't just speak Greek. He spoke Greek well. You all know that you can can speak English and you can speak English well. I remember uh, the one time I went to Bermuda. I was uh, in high school. And I was going with a friend of mine. And uh, my boss said, Oh, you're going to love it when you get there. And he described it to me because he said uh, how it was going to be. He says, When you get off the plane... He says, you will be greeted by a man who speaks better English than you do. Doggone if he wasn't right. I got off the plane and I was greeted by somebody who spoke much better English than I did. Enunciated every word. It was just beautiful, beautiful English. It It was great. So when this guy opens his mouth and he speaks, it don't take long to figure out if a person speaks English well or not. It doesn't take long to figure out if they speak Greek well either. And when Paul opened up his mouth and he just said, may I speak to you? The way he said it, the way he enunciated the words, told this man volumes. He said, can you speak Greek? Here's the question. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? What happened was Josephus tells us about this story, but Josephus numbers are a little bit different. Josephus tells us about a man, and we do not know his name. He is an Egyptian, is all that he's listed as. He posed himself as a prophet. He had prophecies, he had signs, he had lying signs and wonders, and he caused a number of Jewish people to follow him. He told those folks that if we go up to the Mount of Olives, that God will cause the walls of Jerusalem to fall, and we can walk in on the city and take the Roman garrison. When Josephus gives the story in the account, he says that the man had 30,000 soldiers. When Luke writes it in Acts, it says four. So which one is right? Well, there's two possible explanations for it. First off, he may have had 30,000 at one point and only 4,000 showed up with him at the, at the uh, tree there, at the, at the mountain, I'm sorry. To, to wait. That could be a possibility. There's also a possibility that when they were transcribing not the Bible but Josephus when the scribes were recopying some of his his uh, works the difference between 4,000 and 30,000 is a difference between a delta and a lambda. Delta means 4 lambda means 30. And they made just because they're very they're not too far off. They're not totally similar, but they're not too far off from each other. If you would have just mistransferred those, Josephus could have written 4,000 and the scribe could have written 30. And it could have been changed over in the area of Josephus. The numbers that we are told in the uh, account given by Josephus is that 400, I, I may have this flipped, Either 400 were killed and 200 were taken prisoner, or 400 were taken prisoner and 200 were killed. But the total was 600. The rest of them got away, along with him. He got away. He was never found. They never knew who it was, who, who led this revolt. But either 400 died or were captured, and 200 were made up the rest of it. If you had a group of 30,000, see, a Roman Felix, the, the Roman, uh, he, he uh, came against them. He, he found out about their little boy. And he descended on them with everything he had. He came after them, and he knocked them out. They never got a thing off. They never amounted to anything. If you had 4,000, would that 400 and 600 be more acceptable than 30,000? If you had 30,000 and Rome descended on 30,000, wouldn't you think the casualty number would be a little higher? I would think it would be a little higher. I almost would think it would be higher than 4,000. But certainly 30,000. So more than likely, what you're reading here in in Acts is an accurate number. And Josephus, even though different, was probably accurate at one point and uh, got changed. But um, we don't think there's any more than the the 4,000 that were here. So this is what this Egyptian did. He stirred up all these folks against Rome, but he got away. The thing that enters this commander's mind is this man is that Egyptian we've been looking for. That's what he thinks. He thinks it's the Egyptian that they were looking at. Now, the Egyptian, he might be Egyptian. He had some ties to the the Jewish people for them to follow. He was either Jewish, who was over in Egypt, or he became something. But um, he was known as the Egyptian. And he led this revolt. And this commander has assumed that Paul is that guy. But when he speaks a very eloquent, very educated Greek He immediately says, this is not the guy. This is not the guy I'm thinking about. He says, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus. in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Well, all right. (laughs) He's basically identified himself as a Roman. And we've already arrested you. We already put chains on you, so go ahead. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So Paul went from Greek to Hebrew. I don't know how many other languages he knew, but we know that he knew those too, and he knew them very well. So the commander is surprised that he can speak Greek. He assumed he was the Egyptian. But he was not the Egyptian. And uh, the, the guy's assumption was, was wrong. They were going to take him into the barracks and beat him. Are you the Egyptian? And when he says, no, I'm not the Egyptian, they'd beat him some more. Are you the Egyptian? And they want him to confess that he's the Egyptian. I'm sure that this commander is saying, I can tell Rome, I got the Egyptian. Because this is on the most wanted list. You know, he's on the post office. There'd be a picture there, but they didn't have a picture of him. They don't know who it was. It was just the Egyptian. We want the Egyptian. We want to get this guy out. Look at all the assumptions that are made here. First off, we have by James and the elders that this would show the Jews. If you do this ceremony, this will show the Jews you mean business. They also had a number of other assumptions that the people all believed this about about Paul. We have assumptions by the Jews from Asia about what Paul did and believed. They had no facts about it. They had no, They didn't see this Greek go into the temple. They just assumed that Paul brought him in there. They assumed that Paul did some things, and Paul didn't do those things. Paul came along and was going by their law, paid money. You know, if, the, if the commander wants to say, why are all these people mad at you? Paul can simply say, I didn't steal from the treasury. I gave money. I brought money in. When I came, I paid a fee. I gave them money. I didn't take anything from them. He can say all these things, and he can prove all these things that they were they were done. Uh, there's assumptions by the Roman commander about Paul. Who Paul was. And those were wrong. So we got a whole chapter here of a bunch of assumptions. And we've all been around assumptions. People have made assumptions about us. There have been times we've been caught ourselves in assumptions that we didn't think so. I put in your outline, God acts based on facts. The world based on assumptions. The world has no problem doing things based on assumptions. Put this in your outline too. Your thirst for knowledge. What will it be satisfied with? There are some people their search for knowledge is simply satisfied with gossip. You know people like that. They're hungry for knowledge. All they want, all they care about having is gossip. There are other people. If you give them gossip, they're disgusted. It's kind of the same thing. If you go out to eat, there are some people. They are used to dining in nice restaurants. And anything less than that, you know, is no good. When I was uh, driving for Keltzner's and they had uh, switched me from the local to the uh, shore run, which I was internally grateful for them doing. (laughs) But I went along with the owner of the company. I mean, the guy who bought it from Mr. Keltzner, the owner, not my boss, the owner. He owned the whole thing. He was turning it over to his son, who was my boss, but he was the owner. And he was going out because he wanted to touch base with all the shore people down there at the route again. And they wanted me to take him along so that he could show me the route and um, uh, introduce me to some of the people. You know, this is Steve. He's been with us for a little while, and he's going to be taking over because the guy who was before me did not do a very good job, and they were afraid of losing some of these folks. So they brought me along, and he was coming along with us. And uh, I knew I have done some over-the-road stuff for them before, and they had given us, this is back in the 80s, they gave us a $15 a day credit, $15 to spend on food. Drinks, whatever it is, $15. So, you know, I had $5 for breakfast, $5 for lunch, $5 for dinner. That's about what you had. Uh, this was in the, I guess I started there in about 83, 84, uh, probably 84. And uh, I guess, you know, $15 certainly went a whole lot further than it, than it goes today. But you still had to be careful. You had, you had to be careful. So I knew this was the, the limit on the thing, $15. But I'm, I'm with the owner. All right. Now, in order for me to stay with the $15 when I got me before, you know, if you wanted breakfast, you stopped at the Wawa or McDonald's or a place like that. You know, you would get an egg McMuffin or something like that. But um, if you if you went for lunch, you went to a fast food place, you know, some kind of fast food place, get in and you get out. You're trying to find, you know, the uh, a meal that you can get under five dollars. And then, you know, maybe if you skimped enough on the other, then maybe a dinner you could spend six or seven dollars and get a nice yourself a nice dinner. But a lot of times dinner was Wawa too. You know, just going up there and you get a hoagie and you go out for a run, come on back, eat the hoagie. Or else you go downtown and uh, uh, get some pizza, something like that. Pizza was pretty cheap. You can get that in there and and, and go. So I was always within my $15 whenever I turned in my receipts. So he does not eat at a Wawa. (laughs) He does not eat at a McDonald's or any other fast food place. Uh, He eats at diner's. Except for dinner. Dinner we did not eat at a diner. We ate at a restaurant. A restaurant, the first one we went to, I felt severely underdressed. He took me into this restaurant. It was one of our customers. The Blue Claws down in Cape May. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not, but it was elegant. I mean, cloth napkins, cloth tablecloths, silverware. Silverware china for plates and you were greeted by someone in a, a tie a suit they, they were all dressed up and i did wear the best stuff that i had but it was in my best pair of jeans and my best t-shirt because <laughs> that's what i that's what i wore down there so we go going in there i mean the cheapest thing on the menu is something like 20 bucks you know when in Rome what are you gotta do so so we went to a Diner for breakfast. There's a tip. We went to a di- and I'm, I'm handling the money. All right, so I'm paying all the stuff out of the uh, the, the bills that are there. Uh, I'm handling the lunch. I'm getting all the receipts and stuff. So I gathered them all up and I I, I turned into receipts. I mean, we blow away fifteen dollars before lunch. Yes, I mean, it's, it's gone. So I I went up to this to the person that I turned all the paperwork into and I just said I'm sorry. <laughs> and she said, what What for? I didn't pick the places we went to eat, she just laughed. And she says, Don't you worry about it. You were with the owner, whatever he did, it's his money. Amen. I said, Okay, that's that's all fine. Amen. So that's what we did. We that week I ate good. <laughs> we went we went to good places and it was uh it was in, it was intense. <laughs> oh man. But um <laughs> how did we get off on all that? I know there was something we were getting into. Mm. What is it that will satisfy you? See, I could be satisfied with Wawa <laughs> and and McDonald's for breakfast. I can't eat McDonald's food and I, breakfast food. I can eat. I cannot eat lunch or dinner there anymore. I, it, 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 there's, there's something about it. I just can't do it. Uh, but you know what satisfied you before? As you grow, it may not satisfy you later. Hopefully, you're eating better and. And doing better on the, on the food aspect and some worse food that you might have eaten. It just doesn't uh, come through. What's going to satisfy you? If you become satisfied with assumptions, if you become satisfied with gossip, then when you hear it, oh, can I hear some more? Can I hear some more? I, I want some more. I want knowledge. We all have a hunger for knowledge. And if gossip and assumptions will satisfy you, then you'll seek after more gossip and assumptions. But eventually we ought to change. We ought to get to a place where assumptions don't satisfy. you know we, when, you're, when you're young, we like things like marshmallows, and we could eat all kinds of marshmallows and sweet things. and now, I mean, one marshmallow may do you in. that's just too much sugar. that's just uh, I, I I like marshmallows, but you know generally one is enough. I don't, I don't like a whole lot. Put them in hot chocolate and have them dissolve. That's, that's all fine. That's, a, that's okay. I can do that a little bit better. But I, I, just think back. I used to sit there and eat marshmallows. Ugh. It does not be a... It's not appealing to me anymore. We just went through the uh, Easter season and those little chick things. Peeps, that's what they are. I remember eating them when I was a kid. I can't stand them anymore. I look at those and say, Oh, people buy them? And you got a whole factory, and that's all they make. Mm-hmm. Think, when do you start making them? <laughs> God acts based on facts. The world is satisfied with acting on assumptions. There are those who will, who will align themselves with the truth and others with a cause. There are people who align themselves with truth. There are people who align themselves with a cause. You can find them. They're all over. People are generally aligned with one or the other. Either we are aligned with not truth, the truth, or a cause. It's usually one or the other. We align ourselves... With the truth. Those that are aligned them, have aligned themselves with the truth. With the, then when they see the facts. When facts come along. And the facts begin to show I'm not aligned with the truth. Then people who have aligned, people who have sold out to the truth. People who are aligned with the truth. When the facts reveal that I am not aligned with truth on this. I am aligned with an assumption. They will change immediately because they are not aligned with a cause. They are aligned with the truth. And if you can show me some evidence, if you can show me something that says I am not aligned with the truth on this matter. A person who has sold out to the truth will immediately change what they believe. I'll drop it in a moment. If you can show me this. Now, look at Paul. Paul's a great example of this. Paul aligned himself, it looks like, with the cause. But actually, he aligned himself with the truth. That's why God was able to turn him. If he was aligned with a cause, God could, could never have reached him. But he aligned himself with the truth. No one had ever been able to expose that he wasn't a part of the truth. But when God stopped him on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. Uh Uh-oh. I thought I was aligned with the truth. Apparently I'm not. He immediately changes. That's the person who's aligned with the truth. That's where we need to be. People who are aligned with a cause defend assumptions Mm -hmm. and deny or deface facts that contradict along with those who testify of them. Because they are aligned with the cause, not the truth. You can show them evidence, and they'll throw it out. You can show them facts, they don't want to hear it. Because they have aligned themselves with the cause. They have not aligned themselves with the truth. We have got to make sure that we align ourselves with the truth of God's word. The folks that came from Asia, they were aligned with the cause, not The truth. I dare say that even James had left the truth and was aligned with a cause. It's very easy to start off with the truth and become aligned with a cause. James started aligned with the truth. It seems that he'd become aligned with a cause. It's easy to do. We always got to be checking ourselves out. If you want to find out how you're doing on that, it's real easy. If you are exposed to the truth, how quick are you to change? They'll tell you whether you're, signed, whether you're sold out for a cause or whether you're sold out for the truth. The Word of God wants people that are sold out for truth. And I will sell myself out for the truth that I know until that truth is shown to be false. It's shown that, oh, I had an assumption. I thought that was true. But the Word of God I've grown to the point that now I can see I had an assumption going on and I didn't see that. And once we clear up that assumption, we line ourselves with the truth again and we go on. I'm sure that we've been realigned a number of times. Just because you put your wheels in alignment does not mean that they stay aligned. They need to be realigned a few times. They get out of alignment, especially when we have a winter like we had here with all the potholes and stuff. You can have your wheels get a little bit out of alignment. If they get out of alignment, what happens to your tires? They wear out before their time. I'm getting ready to have to get a new set of tires. I have almost 52,000 miles on one set of tires. I thought, doggone, that's pretty good. Talked to my neighbor. We were just talking about tires the other day. He got 20 out of his first set. I said, doggone, I'm still in my original ones. (laughs) Yeah, You know, keep them in alignment, keep taking care of them. If they get out of alignment, what happens to the tires? They begin to wear down. If you get out of alignment with the truth, you begin to wear out because you begin to go after things that don't work because you're not lined up with the truth. You get discouraged on your walk. You get frustrated. God doesn't want it to be that way. Align yourself with the truth. We don't know all the truth yet, but as we grow, God keeps revealing more truth to us. And as soon as we get that truth revealed, we compare ourselves to it. Ah, I can make a correction here. I'm gonna, I, I see now. I have this assumption. I have this thing. I need to get rid of that. I need to align myself with this. And we make the correction. Because whom the Lord loves, he corrects. He, corrects. he chastens. He's going to send that correction our way. And when it comes, oh, yeah, good. Oh, this is great. I get to align myself better. Are we aligned with a cause? we sold out to a cause or we sold out to truth. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean we're sold out for truth. we got to make sure that we are. We can be. I'll tell you what, Paul, for all his faults when he was going around there killing Christians, he was aligned with the truth. It was just the truth that he knew. And when he found out that truth was wrong, he immediately realigned with the new truth. What a great example. It's one we need to line up with as well. Father, I thank you for the help that you give us to keep ourselves aligned with the truth that all along the way, Father, you expose assumptions that we've made, assumptions about people, assumptions about your word, assumptions even about our God. As you expose those assumptions, we can correct them. We can fix them. We can realign ourselves, get ourselves going again. We thank you for the help that you give us in aligning ourselves, selling ourselves out for the truth of God's Word. No assumption will do. Nothing else will satisfy. It's your truth. We look at some people that are around in the world and they get satisfied with such weak things from the Word, some weak things about God. But we look at that and say, that's not satisfying. Because we have been fed off of the meat of your word. We're hearing from your spirit. You're speaking to us. You're opening up our eyes. Revelation comes to us. And we get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. We thank you for it, Father. You're growing us up. You're correcting us. You're making us better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.